This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And if you're new today, we are in the midst of a series leading up to Easter, that we're calling Taste and See. And this is it's from the Gospels, and each week we're looking at an incident in the life of Christ that takes place in the context of a meal. And today we're in chapter 12 of John. This has similarities to another text that we looked at a few weeks ago in this series in Luke 7, where Jesus is anointed, a woman comes in, and she breaks open a flask of ointment and anoints his feet, wipes his feet with her tears. Um, that's different incident, different meal, different woman. Don't get them confused. And so uh, today we're looking at the anointing that takes place in the 12th chapter of John. And I'm calling this message Broken and Spilled Out. So let's see what's happening in God's word, in John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts today. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful things that are in your word. And that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to put them right into the middle of our living. And so we've all come together today in, in this room with different needs in our lives. And as we look at this text that takes place in another room, we pray that you would use it to speak to each person in this room today. You, you know the needs in our lives. You, you, you know um, the areas where we need to hear from you today. And we trust you to do that in the power of your spirit. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a scene that you often see in 
movies, but I cringe whenever I see it. I understand why filmmakers do it, because it can be really dramatic, but I still hate it. And, and that is when people are gathered around a table, maybe a family around a table, and the air is just crackling with tension. And maybe there's backbiting or insults taking place. And I hate it because really when people are gathered around a table, that of all places should be a place of support and a place of love and encouragement. Well, in this particular text, Jesus is gathered around the table with some of the closest people to him in his life. And in this setting on this night, it's going to bring out the best in people and it's going to bring out the worst in people. Jesus at this point is less than a week from death. And he needs his followers to, to be together. But as we're going to see, there's a mixture that's happening in that room. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Let's take a look at the, the, the context, really, of, of what's going on. Um, in verses 1 and 2, we see that this happened six days before the Passover. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, we cannot understand what's happening here unless we understand what leads up to it. So as many of you know, the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John revolve around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus performs. And the seventh of those signs takes place in chapter 11. And it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus became ill. He died suddenly. Uh, Jesus was away. Lazarus is in the tomb for several days. Jesus comes on the scene, raises Lazarus from the dead. That's the seventh sign in John's Gospel, and it takes place in chapter 11, just before this. And that raising of Lazarus took place in Bethany, same place where this meal takes place. Bethany was a little town about two miles from Jerusalem. It was on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So if you were here last week, we were in Luke 19, and we saw that Jesus was passing through Jericho, and he was on his way to Jerusalem. He's almost there. He's almost there. And so he stops in Bethany to see his dear friends. Whenever Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem, he would stay at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were three siblings, and they were like a little brother and two little sisters to Jesus. And they were incredibly devoted followers and close, close friends of Jesus. And so on this night... They're gathered together. It's a time of celebration because here's this man who's been raised from the dead sitting there at the table. But there's a weight 
in the air as well because in just a few days, Jesus is going to be on the cross. Outside that room, plans are already being made to arrest Jesus and murder him. What is not known at that point is that the authorities are going to use someone who is inside that room to make that happen. But before we talk about Judas, I want us to, I want us to look at Mary. And let's look particularly at verse 3. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want us to see four things this morning about Mary's action. First of all, the costliness of it. John really goes out of his way here in verse 3 to, to talk about the fact that it was expensive ointment. And Judas says later on that it was worth 300 denarii. So a denarius was like a day's wages. They didn't work on the Sabbath. They didn't work on the holy days. So there were about 300 working days in a year. What that means is that the contents of this flask are worth someone's annual income. It's a year's wages in this, in this flask that Mary has. And that's because it was, as it says here in verse 3, that it was, it was ointment made from pure nard. Nard is a plant that grows in northern India, so it had to be imported, which is one of the reasons it was so expensive. And the stem or the spike of the nard plant, that's why some translations translate it as spike nard, okay? It's the stem of the plant. They get this incredibly fragrant oil from this plant. And John here says that this was pure nard. It means that's the most concentrated form of it, just like today. You can buy perfume that's in an extremely concentrated form. Usually that's a tiny bottle. Or you can get it more diluted, which is usually a larger bottle. What makes this unique is that this is a, a, a pound of this, a little different than our units. Okay, This would have been like 11 or 12 ounces. But still, it, typically a flask like this would contain one ounce. This is 11 or 12 ounces of pure concentrated nard worth someone's annual income. And what does Mary do? She doesn't take a pinch of it. She breaks it open and pours, pours the entire contents out. Listen, she knows exactly what she's doing. She, she knew the value of this. This was probably the single most treasured earthly possession that she had, which is kind of the point. Because she is saying that Christ is worth more to her than her most treasured earthly possession. 
Stu Weber is a pastor who speaks and writes a lot for men, and he raised three boys himself. And he said he was always he always paid special attention to the youngest one because there was a tendency for him to be overshadowed by his brothers. Um, his youngest one was Ryan. The two older brothers were all conference, everything in sports, all academic, and so this third son would sometimes just sort of be overshadowed, and so dad just paid extra attention to him, and as a result, the two became very, very close, very special relationship, and Stu writes this. He said, Ryan had a pocket knife that was his identity. His older brothers always had to ask him to use the knife when we were setting up camp. That became his status within the tribe. He was the man with the blade. My birthday came around one year, and my family was planning a party for me. Earlier in the afternoon, my youngest walked into my office at home where I was studying. At first, I didn't hear him. I felt him. I could sense his presence, and I turned around. He had chosen this moment because he wanted to give me a birthday present, but not at the birthday party. He wanted it to be just me and him. He handed me a present, and I opened it. It was his knife. You know, this is what Mary is doing here. She's taking, she's taking the most precious earthly treasure that she has and just saying to Jesus, you are worth so much more than this. And in pouring it all out, it's like she's saying that I, I withhold none of my life. My life is poured out before you as your disciple. It's kind of like in the basketball tournament that's going on. I'm sure coaches all across America in this NCAA tournament, they're saying to their team, don't leave anything on the court. You know, you get one shot at this. Don't leave anything on the court. Pour it out. That's what she's doing here. She pours it all out. She's saying, my life is yours. It's like in Romans 12 when Paul says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Put, put yourself on the altar. You get one life to do it. Make it count. Pour it out. Pour it all out before Christ. Don't withhold anything. That's, that's, that's what's happening here. The, 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 the costliness of it. Second, the humility of it. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus and Lazarus are reclining at the table. So as we've seen before, in the first century Middle East, they didn't sit up in chairs. They would recline around a very low table. They would rest on their elbows. Their feet would be stretched behind them. And so the feet of Jesus are actually stretched behind him at this point. And she comes up and she chooses to anoint his feet. And John goes out of his way to stress this in verse 3. Twice he uses the noun, feet. It says that she, uh, she, uh, she, uh, she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. John wants to emphasize this. It was his feet. Why does he emphasize it? Because attending to someone's feet 
was considered a slave's work. Something fit only for slaves. And so in anointing his feet, what's Mary saying? Mary is saying that I am honored to take the posture of a slave when it comes to serving you. It's a posture of, 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 uh, of utmost humility. Um, now, in the very next chapter, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to take a basin and a towel, and he's going to get down and do for the disciples what none of them would do for themselves. They hadn't even done it for Jesus. Jesus is going to get down and he's going to, he's going to wash their feet. And then he's going to say, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. See, <clears throat> the men still don't get it at this point. They don't get it. They don't even get it after they see Mary doing this. They haven't even gotten it when they walk in for that meal that's talked about in John 13. Jesus has to get down and set the example for them. But Mary gets it. Mary gets it here. She gets the fact that greatness in God's eyes is seen in humble service. Jesus says, the greatest among you is the one who serves the one who takes this posture of a slave. The costliness of it, the humility of it. Third, the self-forgetfulness of it. <clears throat> How does it look? How do I look? Do these questions not resound through our mind? Even if we don't express them openly, even if we don't, Say it to ourselves, really? Isn't, isn't, aren't those questions, how does it look? How does this appear? Those are questions that go through our minds and through our actions a lot. And it's because of our fallen sinful nature. It's because of our pride. We're, we're so concerned about appearances. You know, we yearn for human approval. Human acceptance, human applause, human acclaim. We, you know, we, we, want to, we don't ever want to appear undignified. You know, we want to always save face. We, we want to be cool. It's pride. How do we get free from that? Do we get free from it because, by getting more self-esteem? That's really not it. Do we get free from it really by downgrading ourselves is really not it either we get free from pride not by thinking more of ourselves or really thinking less of ourselves but by thinking of ourselves less and focusing on god more and see there's a self-forgetfulness to mary here isn't there i mean she is just living life for an audience of one she doesn't care about any criticism that she's going to get for doing this and then she does something that for a woman in that culture was considered to be the most undignified thing they could do. She lets down her hair in public. She's not thinking about her, her dignity here. She's just, she is so 
caught up in, in a single-minded devotion to Christ. It's kind of like in the Old Testament when David, there's a great victory and God has done something great. And King David dances before the Lord and his wife looks at him and she's like, how undignified. You know, how undignified for you as a king to be behaving like this. And David is like, hey, I'll become even more undignified than this. Because I don't care about how this appears. You know, this is about worship. This is just about, I'm, I'm focused on, on God and, you know, that's, that's it. And that's the way that she was here. Um, she, understand, she understood, as David understood, that we, we cannot focus on, on gaining human approval. We can't focus on, um, on being perceived as, as cool or whatever and really be a servant of God. And so she quite literally lets down her hair in serving God. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I still trying to please man? If I were trying, still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We need to cultivate a self-forgetfulness. Fourth, let's talk about the effect of it. Verse 3 tells us, John tells us that the, that the, the room, the house, was, was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this is eyewitness testimony. This is obviously eyewitness testimony. John was there that night. He was in that room. And, and even as he writes his gospel as an old man, the memory of that night just comes flooding back as if it were but yesterday. And that smell, that fragrance, just comes rushing back to him after all these years. But John is saying more than that it smelled really good in the room or that the smell was pervasive in the room. I think in saying that the fragrance filled the house, I think John is saying something like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 when he says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist who was an atheist before he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian... He spent some time with Mother Teresa and her team in India. And he writes about that time in his life. He says, when I think of them in Calcutta, as I often do, it is not the bare house in a dark slum that is conjured up in my mind, but a light shining and joy abounding. I see them diligently and cheerfully constructing something beautiful for God out of the human misery and affliction that lies around them. One of their leper settlements is near a slaughterhouse whose stench in the ordinary way might make you wretch. There, with Mother Teresa, I scarcely noticed it. Another fragrance 
swallowed it up. You know, it's interesting. In Mark's account of this, Jesus, in defending what Mary has done, says, but leave her alone. What she has done for me is going to be told throughout the world. In other words, the fragrance that's filling this house is going to fill the world. This, this act of love is going to have like a ripple effect as it's told to others. One day in the winter of 1961, <clears throat> a meteorologist at MIT, Edward Lorenz, was doing some usual experience, uh, experiments, but uh, they ended up having, uh, making a discovery that was anything but usual. <clears throat> it took about 10 years of experiments in all from that day until Lorenz was ready to go public with what he had discovered. But in the early 70s, he presented a famous paper in meteorology, and the title of the paper was can the flapping of a butterfly's wings in Brazil produce a tornado in Texas? <laughs> Not directly, but what he had discovered was that tiny, seemingly insignificant things can produce a chain reaction that can result in just sweeping changes in worldwide weather patterns. It was called a butterfly effect. There's a butterfly effect in the spiritual life as well. You know, just one small act of, of love. It could just, it could just be a, something as simple as a smile <laughs> or just a, a small sacrifice or maybe stopping to listen to somebody and engaging them in a conversation especially a conversation about Jesus something so that seems so small can actually be used to change the lives of millions that was the effect of this can happen in our lives too. Let's talk about Judas now. Verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. When it comes to Judas, I believe that most Christians are missing something really important. And the reason that we miss it is because Judas has become for us a caricature. He's become like the, the ultimate bad guy, the ultimate, history's ultimate villain. And, and really, even the name Judas now is synonymous with betrayal. And so we've reduced him to sort of a, a caricature, this, this, this evil villain. But, and, and see, that causes us to miss 
the power of what's happening here because to the people who were in the room that night, to his friends, Judas was nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. Jesus had chosen him as one of the twelve. He chose him for a reason. He saw something in him. He had been with them for three years, and he was a trusted, respected friend, a member of the team in every way. He was the treasurer. Obviously, they put a great amount of trust in him. And it's significant that none of the four gospel writers pile on Judas. They don't. They relate the facts that he betrayed Jesus. They found out later on that he was stealing money and so forth. But, but none of them really pile on. None of them say, oh, that villain Judas, that evil man Judas. They don't do that. There's a humility in them when they write about Judas. Why? It's because they have come to terms with something. And it's something that we need to come to terms with. The gospel writers, um, Judas's friends, you know, they, they have they've come to terms with this. They've had the humility to look at themselves in the mirror, as each, of, each one of us should do, and say, I am a potential Judas. I am a potential Judas. You see, the way that we avoid becoming a Judas is to have the humility to say that to recognize that. Because the way that we avoid becoming a Judas is to understand that we can become one if we drift from the Lord. Let me tell you, with our sinful nature, each one of us walks on the edge of an abyss. We allow ourselves to drift from the Lord. We let down our guard in, in spiritual warfare, and we are capable of thing, evil things that we could never imagine. And so it's humility and recognizing what we are capable of that keeps us alert and that keeps us close to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's, let's, let's see what, what Jesus says here. In verse 7, in defending her, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, the Greek in verse 7 is very difficult to translate. And translators have all kinds of, of, of issues here uh, with how to exactly to translate it. But I think it's pretty clear what's going on. A burial was the one occasion where incredibly expensive spices and ointments would be used if, if they were available on a, on a body, at a burial. If expensive ointments and spices were available, that would be the time that you would use them. And so what Jesus is saying here is that she is 
anointing his body for burial while he is still alive and he can appreciate it. Does Mary know what's going to happen on Friday, just a few days from this point? I don't think so. But Jesus does. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he refers here to my burial. Now, when he says those words, you could hear a pin drop. I mean, just think about this. These people are close to him. He's talking about my burial. I mean, the air is just heavy with those words. What time is it? In verse 1, John tells us that it was near Passover. Passover is just like a few days away. At this point in Jerusalem, just two miles away, hundreds of thousands of people, pilgrims, are streaming into the city for Passover. The population of Jerusalem would swell from 60,000 to maybe like 300,000 during the week of Passover. Why were the pilgrims coming there? They were coming there. Each family was coming to sacrifice a lamb. In memory of what? In memory of the Exodus. In memory of the fact that the night they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, God told each Hebrew family to kill a lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, and the death angel would pass over their home. And they would be set free. And so now you've got these hundreds of thousands of people that are all coming. They're all going to be sacrificing these lambs in Jerusalem this very week. But not one of them is going to be able to truly take away sin. They could only point to the lamb who can take it, take it away. In the very first chapter of John, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But listen, Jesus takes away sin by allowing sin to converge on him. Jesus takes death so that death can pass over us. But he not only absorbs death in our place, he defeats death in our place. And that leads us to Lazarus. Verses 9 and 10. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. If you're an opponent of Jesus, then a guy walking around that he's raised from the dead is a problem. Okay? But if they think that a resurrected Lazarus is a problem. 
what about a resurrected Jesus? See, John here is telegraphing what's going to happen. Jesus has just finished talking about my burial. John is saying this story doesn't end in burial. <laughs> this story ends with an empty, this, this going to be an empty tomb. The sign of the raising of Lazarus, which takes place in chapter 11, points beyond itself. That's why John calls them signs. They point beyond themselves. The raising of Lazarus is a sign that points to another resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, points beyond itself too. Jesus is the first fruits. His raising is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, The raising of Jesus points to the resurrection of every believer in Jesus. When Winston Churchill passed away, his funeral was held in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and Churchill had planned every detail of it. And at the end of the service, there was a bugler and the dome of St. Paul's that began to play taps, often played at funerals, the universal sign that the, the day is over. But immediately after the last note of taps, another bugler on the other side of the dome broke into Reveille, the universal sign that the day is beginning. Right? See, for the believer, the last note is not going to be taps. It's going to be Reveille. It's going to be resurrection. Resurrection. The last note here is not burial. It's resurrection. Lazarus, Jesus, all who believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you absorbed death in our place on a cross, that you defeated death by the empty tomb. We thank you for this good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray that those who are in the hearing of my voice now know Jesus and therefore are going to be raised one day, going to have resurrection bodies. And as we just reflect before him right now, you know, if you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I'm not really certain that I have that. I'm not really certain that I know Christ. I'm not really certain that if he were to return that I would be raised. There's a way that you can be certain. And that's by repenting of your sins and trusting in him today. It means turning from trying to do life your own way apart from him and turning to him and trusting in his finished work for you that he died for your sins on the cross that he was raised from the dead turn to him today trust him today welcome him into your life as savior and lord he will not turn you away in just a moment we're going to have a song of invitation and if God's speaking to you about a relationship with him, we would love to just come alongside and talk with you and pray with you. If you're here and God's speaking to you about 
becoming a part of our church family. We'd love to talk with you about that. If there's just a need in your life um, that you can you want to pray with someone about, we would we would love to be able to do that with you today. So, Father, we give you now this time of of decision. Lord, would you work um, in hearts right now that um, that defining moments would take place, um, definitive moments, life-changing moments as you work in the lives of people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short. you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.